Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm with a very old friend of mine, somebody we were just saying we realised, you know, was put somebody who two people who met way back in the mid to late 1990s, Jorge Mariscal. And I was remembering, Jorge, that the occasion on which we met was a panel at some conference where you were talking about Jim Rome, uh, now very prominent on ESPN, at least in the United States, and in those days better known, though maybe already on ESPN, on television, for a radio program. And you did some really interesting research on him, which you later published. And I, I just remembering that, wondered if you wanted to say something about him. Well, yes, we, we met through, I think, uh, Herb Schiller and Dan Schiller and then eventually Rick Maxwell. And at the time, I was working on this character, Jim Rome, who, interestingly enough, was a, a media studies major at UC Santa Barbara, who then went on to create a kind of hybrid radio show here locally in San Diego. Uh, he started at the bottom and eventually got his own show. And um, it combined a kind of Rush Limbaugh, you know, uh, shock jock political sensibility with uh, a Howard Stern sensibility. So he, he created this following that he called the clones. These were people that listened to him. And Limbaugh calls them dittos. And ditto, ditto heads. Ditto heads, right. Right. And so, so Rome was very clever to bring that into the sports talk area. And he was very smart. Uh, and the other thing he brought in that was new was a kind of hip-hop sensibility. So this was a white kid, you know, uh, who grew up with an affluent family, but uh, would use all the language of, of working-class black kids. So, you know, that brought him a wider audience. And since then, he's gone on. He, he's actually left ESPN now, and he's actually now on a pay uh, service. Oh, it's not right. HBO, but it's I, I believe it's Showtime. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the thing that I think animated your inquiries at that time was that he was very contradictory on race. He, he was really appalling in many ways in discussing certain issues and quite enlightened on others. And it was very hard to pick one's way through this ideological thicket, wasn't it? I think that's right. I, I mean, uh, he was uh, not unlike some of the more famous people now, like John Stewart or even Stephen Colbert, where... Uh, for the most part, their their politics are extremely creative and, and uh, progressive, and on the race issue, they kind of fall down, especially um, when it has to do with Latinos. Um, they they know how to kind of navigate the African American predicament in this country, but they'll often even someone like John Stewart will actually you know do parodies of Latino culture and. Uh, invoked the most racist stereotypes that you can imagine. So Jim Rome did that even as he was appropriating the black language of, of black youth. Right, right. You've been an activist and a scholar and an observer of similar tendencies for a very long time. What is it, do you think, about various brands of Anglo-whiteness in this country that means they're so troubled by Latinos? And on this side of the country, or in California, some might argue Mexican, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos more than anybody else. Well, I mean, you know, there's long historical roots there going back to 1848 when the United States took this part of the country over from Mexico after the U.S.-Mexico War. And so I think the Latino community, at least here in the Southwest, has always functioned as cheap labor. And so that brings with it all kinds of racializing attitudes and stratification. So that really hasn't gone away. And with the demographic explosion 
at the end of the last century where thousands and thousands of new immigrants came, most of them from Latin America, um, not only to the Southwest now, but all over the United States. So, you know, in the late 90s, you had 200 to 300 percent increases in the number of Latinos in Arkansas and North Carolina and New York. Um, and every little town in Illinois. Every little and town. Iowa. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah, they're everywhere now. Um, again, doing cheap labor for the most part. And in the Deep South, you know, in Alabama, um, Georgia, and other places. So I think the, the demographic changes heightens the, the fear um, that the country is browning, for lack of a better term, and that white supremacy is being challenged at every level. You know, and then it's all complicated by the Obama presidency and the whole fantasy of being post-racial. I think the killing of this young black man in Florida recently, Trayvon Martin, you know, pretty much shatters that fantasy, I would hope. Um, and yet the, the media reaction to his death um, has been despicable. In, more in, and more in, hysterical in, by the minute. Absolutely. And, and the way it's trying to almost recuperate white supremacy in a way. Um, and then, of course, it's complicated because the shooter who killed the young man, was his mother was Peruvian. So, right. You know. And he's got a Jewish name. <laughs> right. And Peruvians are an extraordinary mix like a lot of right. Americans. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And what about language? I mean, Latinos by no means all speak Spanish, and for those folks outside the U.S. and within who may not know this, lots and lots of people from Latin America who come to work in Southern California have to learn Spanish as their second language right. because they were speaking an indigenous language back home, and it's mm -hmm. more valuable once they're here and in these almost sub-proletarian jobs right. to be able to learn Spanish than, than English. Right. But, and as I said, lots and lots and lots of Latinos either don't speak Spanish or it's kitchen Spanish and it's not mm -hmm. something they would comfortably use in everyday life. Mm -hmm. But that said, there's a linguistic element to this white supremacy Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the, California led the charge for this English-only legislation. And what we're seeing in Arizona now is really a reaction not just against the language, but the culture in general. So the Mexican-American Studies program in Tucson that was just eliminated because the right-wing Republicans forced it, you know, off the books, um, is just the latest symptom of this. The, the language issue is interesting because you have second, third, fourth generation Mexican-Americans who may have lost their Spanish or, as you said, speak kitchen Spanish only, have to relearn Spanish. But then we also have, well, not far from where we're sitting, as you also pointed out, indigenous people, mainly from southern Mexico and Central America, who never spoke Spanish. Mm. So not far from where we're sitting here in this very affluent area, you have people working in the fields who speak Mixteco, Zapoteco, and, you know, other indigenous languages. And, you know, if we were to leave here in 10 minutes, I could have you in a taco shop where no one spoke Spanish. They speak these indigenous languages. It's fascinating, isn't it? And right. I, one of the things Jorge raises may be of interest to folks outside the US especially is that fortunately one of the good side effects of the First Amendment to the Constitution, the one that guarantees free speech, an amendment that has lots of bad aspects to it, is that English is not the official language of this country and ever since the 1920s, no matter how conservative it may have been, every Supreme Court has ruled out attempts by different states to legislate that English is the national language. And this is one of the great aspects that, that those of us who value a, a mixture of linguistic traditions 
can revel in, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, monolingualism. Uh, every study shows is a, is a, a, a you know something that uh, holds you back in terms of success in this country, and yet the dominant culture still is promoting this kind of monolingualism, English only. Um, you know, I think eventually people will come around, but the white supremacy is not going to go down easily, and it's not just about race, it is about language and culture in general. And there are also divisions that derive from within minorities. I'm thinking about the fact that for so many African Americans, because of slavery, becoming an American was such an achievement that there can be real difficulties in intra-working class connectedness, especially between Latinos and African Americans. Historically, this has been an issue on and off. And language, it can be part of that, or of course, although, again, for listeners outside the US, there are lots of black Americans who are Spanish speakers, particularly people from the Dominican Republic right. or Puerto Rico, you know, and other places. Right. There are, you know, tens of thousands of Afro-Mexicans, for example. Absolutely, yeah. The, the other interesting thing um, is the new division within the African-American community. So, for example, um, at UC San Diego, where I teach and where we are today, um, Half of our black students on campus are African. They're not African-American. Yes. So they're Somalis and Eritreans and others. Um, and so they come with a whole different historical and cultural baggage. They kind of have to learn the way in which white supremacy functions in this country. And so that's one division. The other division, historically, has been among ethnic groups. Um, and one thing that we've been trying to research here on our campus are the alliances over the last 60, 70 years between blacks and Latinos, and there's been a lot of them. So, for example, we're sitting here having lunch on Cesar Chavez Day in California, and the United Farm Workers was a coalition. It was a broad coalition of not just Mexican farm workers, but Filipinos, blacks, whites, um, Arab. They had a lot of Palestinian members in the early days. So uh, one thing we're trying to emphasize for our students are the coalitions that have always existed. That are, that are always possible. Right. But speaking of which, can you tell us what you're up to here and now in either research terms or activism terms, if I can even draw a distinction between those activities? Well, I, you know, mainly have been focusing my attention on the privatization of the UC system, and we're both part of that. And I've kind of watched it slowly accelerate over the last 20 years. And uh, it's so troubling now that a lot of the kinds of communities we're talking about are now going to be excluded from the best university system in the state, which is supposed to be a public university. Um, rising costs, um, you know, act, uh, decreased access, decreased services. Um, uh, inflated admissions criteria, which San Diego has always had, um, is going to keep working class kids out. And um, so I've been working on that and doing research on what the impact of privatization will be on historically underrepresented minority groups in, in higher education in California. Um, that's linked with my other interest, which Toby, as you know, it goes way back, you know, because I was trained as a classical Spanish scholar, and so I still, you know, teach courses on Cervantes, Don Quixote, and other things. So um, the other research project I have is tracing the origins of white supremacy back to Spain and to the moment right after the Islamic invasion of Spain when 
the Visigoths, who were defeated by, by the North African forces, uh, began to create this fantasy of a kind of pure white Spanish race, right? It comes from the northern part of Spain. And, um, I, you know, I think it really um, is going to have resonance for what we're talking about today, believe it or not, even though this was happening in the ninth century. Um, the origins of white supremacy still, you know, feed the current manifestations of it. So those are two things I'm working on. That's fascinating. I wonder if, related to that, we could go back, 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 as they say in baseball country. Yeah, I think we're right to order. Thank you. I'm just going to have the ravioli. Yeah. And like, do you have Chianti by the glass? Or? I don't know if I have Chianti. I do have wine by other wine. Yeah, something red and dry. Yeah. And I'd like, if you just got a green salad with no meat or fish in it, I just, just something vegetarian. Thank you. No, I, well, I'm, I'm happy with the dihydrous oxide that you've kindly provided. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, even though there's not much of it to go around in Southern California, I'll take that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, go back, 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 as they say in baseball commentary, yeah. to your first book, which comes out in... I guess the early 90s, mm -hmm. and is precisely about if what we would think of today as classic Iberianism as a mm -hmm. topic. But can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that won lots of prizes, by the way. People might be interested. Right. Um, that that book was really about um, the origins of what, for lack of a better term, I'll call early modern subject formation. So it was really about the tension in Spanish culture in the 17th century between a kind of fundamentalist Catholic um, society based on the fantasy of pure blood, which comes out of that contact with Muslim and, and Jewish and other groups, um, and a kind of emerging Catholic, still Catholic and still Spanish, but a humanist tradition. Um, Thank you very much. And probably the best example of that, best known to, to most people, is Cervantes. And the best uh, text to look at to see how that's developing is, is Don Quixote and the two volumes of Don Quixote, where he's really you know, pushing the envelope. He's not quite yet modern. He's not quite where we're going to be in terms of tolerance and um, feminist issues. He's, he's not a feminist yet but he's pushing certain biological notions of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a Spaniard, what it means to be human. So I think that's the tradition, the Catholic humanist tradition, and gives us someone like Bartolomé de las Casas in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And again, all kinds of problems with las Casas, obviously, but for the moment, it was this you know, kind of halting step towards modern notions of tolerance. On the one hand, wanting to convert everybody. On the other hand, originating some ideas about cultural relativism. Absolutely. Different and, and, you know, putting a break on the kind of military solution, which was to kill everybody or else, you know, uh, convert them at sword point, whereas Las Casas is saying, no, they're, they're human. They can understand Catholicism if we teach it to them. And I know there's all kinds of problems with that from our point of view, but for the time, you know, it was certainly one moment in, in the step towards what the Enlightenment would later develop. Yeah, sure. No, very interesting. And what about the rational subject? Uh, if you go forward a couple of hundred years to the English language novel origin myth and Robinson Crusoe, 
that's very much about the emergence of the liberal subject, not necessarily in terms of tolerance, but in terms of the rational calculating quasi-consumer. Mm -hmm. well, in, in Don Quixote, he's so confused and melodramatic and crazed that where is the rationality of that kind playing out there? Well, the rationality in, in Cervantes actually plays out when Don Quixote, who we all know as this madman, is juxtaposed, in, especially in the second novel, which is 1615, to other characters who are truly mad. And so then one begins to see that he's not quite as out of control as, as people thought. And the most interesting part of the second book is when Don Quixote is brought into a... Um, situation where he's surrounded by noble people. Usually aristocrats don't appear in, in Cervantes, but here we have a duke and a duchess mm -hmm. who bring him into their uh, palace and stage a series of theatrical performances, all scripted by the duke, to make fun of and to mock Don Quixote for his claim of individualism, because his claim is, I can be whoever I want. It doesn't matter who my parents were or what my bloodline is or my lineage. And so, uh, what he does in that second book is to say, look at how um, malicious and petty these aristocrats are compared to this relatively poor Hidalgo who's claiming to um, be able to construct some kind of individualism, right? So I, I think the, the rationalism that'll come later in someone like Descartes isn't quite there yet, and yet he's, he's hinting at it, he's playing right. with it. Right. And the idea that you can rebirth yourself Mm -hmm. uh, contra mm -hmm. your origins. Absolutely. And that there is a decadency, decadence, decadence mm -hmm. to the aristocracy. Absolutely. That's struggled against. Absolutely. And a worthlessness to the, those characters in particular. And one thing Don Quixote says a lot is, cada uno es hijo de sus obras. Mm -hmm. So that means, you know, I am the product of what I do in life, not who I am or what I inherit from my parents. Right? So that was a little bit revolutionary for that period, especially in Spain. Yeah. And when you teach this today, what kinds of reactions do you get from students and what kinds of students are interested in this? Well, you know, I attract a constituency of, of Latino students mainly um, because I do teach Don Quixote, but I also teach Chicano classes, so they tend to follow me around. <laughs> and uh, the reaction you get is usually, oh, my grandfather always told me I should read Don Quixote, right? My grandfather in Mexico always said it's a great book. Um, so I think young Chicano, working class Chicano students are very interested in this notion of self-creation, as you said, right? That you don't have to be bound by your origins. And in, in fact, you can be whatever you want, which is what Don Quixote says. You have to remember that Don Quixote's sidekick, this peasant named Sancho Panza, actually becomes the governor of an island, right? And Don Quixote is the one who's always telling him, you can be that. Don't think you can't be that just because your father and grandfather were peasant. So my students are very interested in that. And just by being at a UC campus, they've already taken the first step. They've to already achieved a great deal. Absolutely. Yeah. They've moved out of yeah. their parents' class position. Right. Of course, it also buys into the dominant U.S. nostrum of the possibility of advancement based purely on merit. The absurdity that our students really subscribe to, no matter how many statistics you throw at them to show them that it's not true, mm -hmm. that there is social mobility in the United States upwards, whereas there isn't. There's social mobility downwards, yeah. uh, just as there is in Britain, just as there is in every Anglo-dominated country that has gone down the neoliberal path. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you know, and not I'll, I'll stop talking about Cervantes in a minute, but, <laughs> but one of the things he does say, as, even as he's saying you can be what, what you want, he always says within limits. So it's, it's, I always bring in the text by Marx who says, you know, we make history but not always in the conditions we would like. So there's tremendous constraints built into this notion of, you know, self-formation and, and self-fashioning. Now, speaking of that, uh, and obviously there are personal elements to this, your next book that I'm aware of is Aslan in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, and maybe you could explain the concept of Aslan to people who may not be familiar with it, mm -hmm. uh, including skeptics like me, but right. certainly right. people who literally won't have heard of it, who might be in Sweden or wherever. Mm -hmm. And also talk about Vietnam and, and what that meant to you and what this book's about. Okay. So in the ancient Aztec chronicles that we have, um, there's an origin myth um, where the, the scribes talk about a place to the north of northern of, of Mexico City, somewhere in the north, they don't say where, and it's called Atzlan, A-Z-T-L-A-N, and that's the point where their people were born, essentially, and then they took this long pilgrimage to the south and founded Mexico City and the Aztec Empire. So in the late 1960s and 70s, we have something called the Chicano Movement in the United States, where Mexican-Americans who had been, as I mentioned earlier, conquered in 1848 and then racialized and you know used as cheap labor for all those decades, uh, suddenly stand up, especially Mexican-American youth, stand up and say, we're going to reject this inferior status we've been given by the dominant white supremacist regime. And so they look back to Atzlan as this point of origin, and they say it's the U.S. Southwest, the point being that we're not foreigners here, as we've been treated and as we've been told, that our, our people centuries ago came from this land, and we're part of the land, and so we're linked to the indigenous communities. So that's Atzlan. Um, the reason I chose that for the title of the book was precisely that, because of the way it had been used by the Chicano movement, which is my generation, and you know, the... Vietnam War generation. Um, the Vietnam connection comes because um, as a working class Chicano growing up in, in LA, um, I was drafted into the US Army in 1968. And because I was a working class person, uh, I had no notion that you could actually resist the government <laughs> and refuse to go. Or, so. or pay someone's some uh, groovy psychotherapist right. or psychiatrist right. to say you were insane, which right. is what you know, you know, George Udyssey managed to do because he, you know, right. he got to Princeton, absolutely, from New York or wherever it was he went, right? Right. And so he, all his white friends said, "Oh, there's a guy, you know, on the Upper West Side right. who'll sign a chit, absolutely, and he'll be safe." Absolutely, so, that's why I think in both the. 1969-1970 graduating classes of Harvard, no one served in Vietnam. Well, remember um, that Dick Cheney had the great statement oh, right. about this, I had other priorities right. at the time. Right. What, like staying alive, maybe? <laughs> right. right. And he's still alive. <laughs> and he's still alive. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. yeah. Um, in any event, so you were drafted. I was drafted, and, you know, my father had been a Marine in World War II, uh, which has always been a vehicle of assimilation for, for working-class Latinos. And so there simply was no tradition in my community for resisting the draft or refusing to go. So I wound up going, um, came back. Anyway, the point is that um, when I started teaching, uh, I found out that in most of the literature, the word Latinos were left out. So it was the old black-white binary. You know, There were a few books on African-Americans in, in that war, almost nothing on Latinos. 
And so I had to create my own reader for my class, which eventually turned into that book, Atslan in Vietnam. And uh, a few years later, Ken Burns does his documentary series about, I guess, World War II, mm -hmm. where people like your father are, as we say, conspicuous by their absence. <laughs> Absolutely, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ken Burns, when we, a group of us, approached his production company and said, what happened? Why are there no Latinos? Because half a million Latinos served in World War II. Um, he said, we couldn't find any. <laughs> so, so, you know, we pointed out we could have helped him. And he actually added, be, between commercials, after, he, you know, the, the firestorm that erupted about his series, he put in a couple of interviews with Latinos, but they weren't integral to the... To no, the now, in terms of yeah. the, the book that you edited, just turning back to that for a moment, uh, tell us about the raw materials for it, because that's a particularly interesting exercise. For me as a reader, I found it quite fascinating. Well, the book is divided into two parts. So the first part is uh, dedicated to writings and texts by Vietnam veterans, uh, Mexican-American Vietnam veterans. And the second part are texts um, by... Chicano or Chicana anti-war protesters. Um, so I, I felt that that was absolutely necessary for that war. There are books about Latinos in World War II, and they're very patriotic, and they're very, you know, we fought too, and we fought for democracy, and we should be treated as first-class citizens. But Vietnam was a very different war, so um, I felt that both sides had to be represented. And so we, we collected stories, short stories, uh, letters, uh, testimonials, uh, poetry, um, and as much as we could that kind of portrayed the Mexican-American experience of that war. Um, some beautiful writings by people who lost brothers and cousins. Um, a friend of mine who's a professor in Texas actually lost six cousins in that war. Um, and you know, in Illinois there's this um, part of uh, a town called Silvis, Illinois, called Hero Street where that, in, in one block in this city, which is a Mexican-American neighborhood, they've lost hundreds of young men to various American wars, whether it be World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and now Iran and Afghanistan. So the, the, um, the sacrifices made by this particular community to what I would call America's imperial wars has been great. In terms of your own ideological formation, so you... You trudge off to Clarksville, as per the monkey's song, or whatever it is, and you go to this theatre. Uh, I'm not asking you to, to go any more personally into this than you wish, but your ideological formation before, during, and after, could you talk a bit about that and how people whom you knew, whether they were you know, African-American, European-American, white, Latino, whoever, spoke about these things to one another? What part it played in your radicalization, or were you already there? No, I wasn't there by any means, and, and that's, you know, if I had been there, I probably would have resisted the draft, and there were two or three Chicano draft resistors um, by 1969, which is pretty late in the war, but it took a while for our community to kind of realize it was being exploited that way. Um, so I, I grew up in a kind of classic lower middle class um, Mexican-American Catholic family. 
it wasn't very political, although I subsequently found out that my grandfather, who never spoke English, ran a print shop in East LA that published political propaganda for local <laughs> radicals, which I didn't know about until much later. Sweet um, story. The person that but told me that. It was just business, because he's doing it in English. He yeah. doesn't know what they're saying. Yeah, he, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> right. He printed po political tracks and wedding announcements. <laughs> <laughs> but the person he who told the me, beginning and the end, but not the middle. <laughs> right. The person that told me this was one of the great uh, left organizers in Mexican American history, a man named Bert Corona, um, who knew my grandfather. Um, as I said, my dad was a you know a high school graduate who then served in World War II in the Marine Corps. And so I, you know, we were terribly political. We were like most Mexican Americans. We were clearly, uh, or they, you know, growing up, my parents were clearly Democrat Party. Mm. You know, the influence of FDR still carried a lot. The the election of John Kennedy in 1960 was a big thing because he was Catholic. There are still, by the way, for folks outside the U.S. I want to make sure you get a chance to have some sure. of that ravioli before sure. it loses its temperature. There are still lots of Chicano families, it said, in L.A., where there's a photo on the wall of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Absolutely. I could take you uh, 30 minutes from here if we got in the car and drove fast. We could be in Tijuana. We could be across the border in Mexico. And, and the uh, stalls selling felt paintings, right, these kind of cheesy paintings made in felt, you'll see John Kennedy as one mm. of the main figures still. Even though it was a conflictual topic within his own administration and his own formation. He is credited with saying we're a nation of immigrants. Right. And making that point. Right. Now part of this is cynically a ploy for the Latino vote, because right. they were already interested in that and they knew they were behind the eight ball because his father had been a Nazi and <laughs> Right. <laughs> a minor detail. <laughs> minor detail. <laughs> At least an appeaser, let's say, but probably a Nazi. And perhaps more relevant to the United States, they were Catholics, as you say. But whatever the reason was, uh, he still stands out in Chicano folklore, doesn't he? Latino folklore more generally. All the Kennedys do, absolutely. Um, and without the pitiful, you know, three words of Spanish in, at election time as being part of it. Right, and we're here on C Cesar Chavez Day, and of course Cesar Chavez was very close to Robert Kennedy in his final years, and he was also, you know, <laughs> extremely problematic. Mm. <laughs> but um, in his final years, he did support the farm workers' union. So, so yeah, it's a conflicted history. Um, what, what really radicalized me was going to Vietnam and seeing what was happening and, um, you know, talking to the Vietnamese people who spoke English, and there were quite a few by that time because the war had been going on for a while. And I remember one day sitting next to a Vietnamese woman who knew English, and I stupidly repeated something that the military had told us. You know, I said, well, we're here to help you. And she just looked at me very calmly and says, we don't want your help. Mm. <laughs> you know? And so at, from that point on, I started to you know, study the war, what we were doing there, how it started, and uh, came back and joined the anti-war movement. Um, was there a moment when you started to think, I'm not an American, or these people aren't American. By the way, again, for folks outside the country, one of the difficulties in here in the United States is that we don't really have a good adjective for it. They have a good one in Spanish. Right. It's done really in but we don't have a good one. 
Mm. And we don't have a good one for describing ourselves as peoples because we try to pretend that there aren't dozens of other <laughs> Americas. Right. But given all of that, did you have a moment when you stopped identifying as, in, in a sense, the unmarked subject of this country, or had you always known you were marked? I think I always knew we were marked. Um, I remember people saying to my father, um, you must be Italian and you're trying to hide it. <laughs> you know, because my father was actually very dark-skinned. Um, and so I think at the level of skin color and class position, I knew we didn't quite fit the dominant, you know, mode. Um, I don't think I ever stopped thinking I was American. After the war, I, I you know, I wasn't as happy about being an American, that's for sure. But I've always felt that um, I'm kind of stuck here, and my goal as an adult was to help um, critique um, the, the lack of delivering the promises made by this country to, to its citizens, you know. And so that's why I still involve myself teaching the civil rights movement and Chicano movement. And, you know, I, I think those moments are the ones that I'm most interested in. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of stuck being a, a, a U.S. American. U.S. American. Yeah. When you came back and, as you say, you joined the anti-war movement, the Chicano movement is also picking up at that time. Were there as many contradictions as overlaps, would you say, between the two movements? Were there as many things in common as there were contradictions across the two movements? Um, I, I do think there were contradictions, there's no question, uh, in the same way that there were contradictions between the women's movement and then, you know, the women's of color movement. Um, just because the, the anti-war movement um, at that time really hadn't begun to factor issues of class and race into their analysis, even though clearly everyone knew by 1968 or 9 that the war in Vietnam was a working class war, and in fact most people who served and died were working class white people. Um, but um, there, there were a lot of tensions because of a kind of, for, for lack of a better term, and I'm a little tired of this term now, but of, because of the white privilege amongst the leadership of the anti-war movement. Um, and, you know, I think the smarter folks began to realize that I, you know, in my later years here, I've gotten to know Tom Hayden a little bit, and, um, and he, you know, he realized it early on. Um, and so, uh, yes, there were tensions, there's no question about it, which is why the Chicanos, by 1970, were creating their kind of own branch of the anti-war movement and did their famous demonstration in 1970 where three people were killed. Um, what was it like moving from being a soldier to being an activist? Well, I probably shouldn't say this, but you do learn how to organize in the military. <laughs> 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 you know, the hierarchy is a problem, but um, no, I mean, it makes you very task-oriented, and, and I think I've learned more from activists than I have from academics about how to get things done. I, I find academics pitiful in terms of actually running a meeting where you, you come out and you know what everyone's going to do and you have specific goals. Um, 
So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think the military training um, transfers automatically to activism, but, but activism, um, I have tremendous re respect for the activists I've known, just in terms of their intelligence and their ability to link that to organizational skills. Mm -hmm. So, at some point during all of this, you must have gone to school. I mean, you, you go on and you do a PhD, so where did the academic trajectory fit in? I think, um, you know, like most immigrant families, um, education was always highly valued, but not understood, because I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so, when I came back from the war, I did what a lot of working class people do. They stay close to home, and I went to community college which is a two-year college, and then transferred to a Cal State, which is like the next level in the California system, the, the level where most working-class kids wind up, and then for graduate school wound up finally in a, in a University of California school at Irvine. So, you know, I, I think my trajectory mirrors what happens to those working-class kids who are lucky enough to make it through those three stages, because it's not that easy. Um, always, with each yeah. part of your education, you're going up, not just in terms of, you know, from associate to BA to PhD, but you're going up a rung in terms of the hierarchy. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's total, it's yeah. a complete class it's hierarchy. It's a, a three-class system mm -hmm. uh, in public education at the higher level in California. We should also say that within that, there's a class system. So within the University of California mm -hmm. system, the ruling class is Berkeley and UCLA and UCSD, and then there's a middle class and then there's a third class. Right. So, um, so you get to Irvine for the doctorate. Right. And is this what becomes the Cervantes, etc. work, the subject formation? Exactly work? right. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, at that time, Chicano studies was something totally new mm -hmm. in the early 70s. Um, most campuses didn't have it yet. So that a Chicano like myself winds up in Spanish studies, Spanish peninsular studies, studying the best known Spanish author, you know, the most canonical <laughs> and fetishized author of all time. Um, so that was ironic. By um, the way, I think that's a very good thing. Mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interalia. We were lamenting yesterday, Jorge, in a brilliant address that he gave to the conference we were both at, advised us that in the literature department, which he's a member at UC San Diego, nobody teaches Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. There is no Shakespearean. Right. I was flabbergasted by this because, as I said at the time, for me this is the great, you know, um, the man of great insight into gender relations, the great anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, mm -hmm. the person who appreciates hyper-masculinity and its role in the aristocracy, I mean, apart from all the other wonderful bardic qualities, mm -hmm. but if you want to understand the emergence of the British Empire and the Industrial Revolution, a couple, you know, couple of hundred years before Marx got there, well, mm -hmm. <laughs> but in any event, I think it's great that people are studying um, the classics, because in many cases there are real reasons why they actually are classics, because they do have such polyvalent qualities, right? And the empty formalism and classicism of a certain kind of textual appreciation of these people, right. understandable though it is, because they are wonderful stylists and mm -hmm. technicists, 
is very easily burst asunder when you actually look at the content and also the allusion. Absolutely. You know, I, I think what these classic authors do is, in their writings, capture almost the entire ideological field of their moment and all of its contradictions. So that makes it very easy to teach, to talk to students about ideological contradiction. And ideological contradiction is how we get change, right? If you didn't have contradiction, the whole thing would be fossilized. So um, that's how I use Cervantes, and I agree with you. I, you know, I think Shakespeare can be used that way, too. Oh, no question. I mean, think yeah. about Terry Hawkes right. and that whole tradition, or right. mm -hmm. the whole tradition of Marxism, where people are very happy to teach the canon. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. In any event, so you go on to do this dissertation, and at this point, Chicano studies barely exists, and, and probably not at the doctoral level, anyway. Mm -hmm. So when do you emerge clutching your bit of paper, your plumber's certificate? <laughs> <laughs> you stagger out of that uh, most bizarre of places, Irvine, California. <laughs> Orange County, California. <laughs> well, I did what most young assistant professors do, is take the first job that you're offered. And I landed in the middle of Iowa. Um, which is, as, as your listeners will, will see on a map, is right in the middle of the United States. And I was in, literally in the middle of a cornfield. That's where Grinnell College is. And Grinnell College is an interesting place because it was founded by abolitionists in the 19th century. And so it actually has a very progressive tradition. And the student body is drawn from uh, families, um, not super wealthy families, but professional families on the East Coast whose kids couldn't get into the Ivy League. So you have a very high quality student body and a progressive faculty for the most part. So what I learned there for three years, and this is a small liberal arts school, right? Undergraduate degree only. I learned how to teach uh, something that we don't instruct people about how to do in graduate school. You know, you kind of get thrown into the classroom after you earn your PhD. But I really learned how to teach undergraduates, and I'm very grateful to Grinnell College for that. And, um, and even to this day, I consider myself more an undergraduate teacher than a researcher or, a, a, you know, a producer of other PhD academics, which doesn't very much interest me anymore. I have to say. Teaching the, the graduate school level. Right. Thank you very much. Right. Yes, nowadays I teach big introductory classes, you know, 150, 200 people. I think maybe mm -hmm. 250 on Monday, mm -hmm. next Monday. These are the people you want to reach, for goodness sake. Absolutely. And also who can teach you. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, particularly my students, mm -hmm. because as you know, at, at Riverside, we have really the kind of student body that, where you would have a lot of followers. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you have many here, but even more. Mm -hmm. And if you can get beyond the conventions of cultural capital and see excellence outside its awful, awful context of managerialism and redefine merit and excellence, thank you, I don't know anymore, but I'd love a cup of black tea if I could. To include uh, life experience, heritage, hmm. experience of my uh, marginality, uh, and so on, and you really learn something. Mm -hmm. 
if almost every day. But in any event, uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying. So you, you come back to the coasts, though. You're drawn back from Grinnell. Actually, no. I, no? Uh, I left Grinnell and uh, landed a job at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Oh, of course. I'm sorry. No, right. I didn't know about Grinnell, but I did know you were there, because that's right. indirectly how you come to know Rick, is that right? Directly that how I directly come, come to know, know Rick. Our, right. our friend Rick Maxwell, who's another pod victim. So you go to University of Wisconsin-Madison, so you move up in the world mm. in two senses. <laughs> Geographically. Poor, and you're back on the peninsula. No, right. <laughs> this poor guy, he can never leave <laughs> the <laughs> conquistador behind. <laughs> no matter where he goes, toys. <laughs> one step behind and one step in front. So he's on the peninsula of Madison uh, and up in the world in that it's further up the map. Right. And up in the world in the, uh, whatever else we've just been saying about teaching and liberal arts education. And it is one of the great research universities of yeah. the United States. Right. Thank you very, very much. And with, again, a long radical tradition. Absolutely. Uh, you know, rural sociology and rural radicalism in that part of the country has always been strong. Right. Right. Minnesota too, but... On the other hand, I, I, ha I must point out that the Spanish department at Madison was not part of that radical tradition. <laughs> and when we landed there, um, because I arrived there at the same time that Rick Maxwell's partner, Alda Blanco, arrived there. So Alda and I were, were hired at the same time. Oh, so she was a faculty member, you were a faculty member, right. and Rick was a grad student. Exactly right. Oh, right, right, right. And of course, Alda Blanco is the daughter of the great Spanish writer, Carlos Blanco Aguinaga, who you know was exiled and after his family was exiled after the Civil War and he taught here where Toby and I are at the University of San Diego for many years and is still around living down the hill here from where we are. Um, uh, the Spanish department at Madison at the time was still run by people who subscribed to the Guerrieros de Cristo magazine, which was a pro-Franco <laughs> magazine, <laughs> and it was one of the most traditional right-wing Catholic Spanish departments uh, in the country. So you had to say you were a member of Opus Dei to get in. <laughs> exactly. Jorge Mariscal, OD. At least I could <laughs> tell them I'd been confirmed in the Catholic Church. Um, but so, why did they hire you two? Well, what they used to do is they used to hire six or seven assistant professors at a time and then weed them out. So when I, at one point when I was at Madison, there were six of us, literally six, who did golden age Spanish literature, which is 16th, 17th century. And we all did the same thing. So they were just going to choose the right. one or two that they thought were most useful to them. Right, absolutely. Um, fortunately, I got out of there before they were able to choose. <laughs> before the culling. The great, the great culling by the right, Guineas of the harvest. <laughs> we laugh about these things because he survived, but right. obviously we both realize how grotesque that kind of activity is. Right. And it still goes on, but nowadays it's not as feasible for public universities in the US to be quite as obvious about it. Mm -hmm. In fact, they can do it in much more subtle ways because they do it by the exploitation of the precariat, specifically right. the real precariat of what we call in Southern California freeway professors. People right. who have to ride around from campus to campus to campus to cobble mm -hmm. together an excuse for a salary. Right. In any event, so there's a whole stack of you who arrived there at UW-Madison. And 
Aldo Blanco is is there. Uh, you're there. You get and you get to know Rick. And then when you say you escaped, you come. That is when you make your way back to the coast. Right. So a job opens up at UC San Diego. I didn't really know San Diego very well because I grew up in the LA area, and, and we used to come here occasionally, and even had relatives here. Um, but I really didn't know the city. Um, but of course, I applied. By this time, I was married. My, my wife had gone to graduate school in Chicago, so we actually spent, when I was in Madison, spent a lot of time in Chicago and got to know that city, which we really love. Fantastic city, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so um, I got the job here, and I simply had to take it, you know. Um, so uh, we arrived here. It was uh, the, the polar opposite of the Madison Spanish department because it was a literature department. It, it had all these progressive traditions built into it. It had been founded by people like Roy Harvey Pierce, who was, you know, an old-fashioned liberal, but had been the first person to really do serious scholarship about Native American culture. Um, and then Carlos Blanco Aguinaga, who was this great leftist um, scholar and uh, creative writer as well, who was here. And, and many of the top theorists had come through here. So Frederick Jameson had close ties to the department. Edward Said had close ties, um, and many others. So, so it was almost like landing in heaven in a way. You know, tremendous support. You know, that, that we talked about the culling process. The opposite was true here. They said, you know, you're going to get tenure. We're going to make sure you do. And um, you know, and so. Um, the early years were kind of uh, utopian for me here, and it's true, and they helped me get tenure. And I met some other folks who were visiting professors here who kind of took me under their wing to mentor me about how to write a tenure book, because no one teaches you that either. And the person who taught me that was a, a woman named Nancy Armstrong, who's actually an expert in English novel. Yes, and interestingly, in the context of your book, that first book of yours, Really, her work is great on subject formation mm -hmm. in around that era and mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. I don't know her personally, but I'm a, an admirer of her work. Right. She's at Duke now with her husband, Leonard Tenenhaus, who's a Renaissance scholar. And they had been visiting here for several years and lived in Del Mar, which is not far from where we are right now. And so um, since I was writing about the ideology of blood purity in Spain in the 17th century, they decided to invite me uh, every weekend to what they called blood brunches. <laughs> <laughs> and I would go to their house and um, just, um, you know, brainstorm with them about where the book should go. And she re helped me restructure it. Um, and so I owe them a lot, you know, um, probably more than I owe the, the folks here. And then they moved on. They, they moved on to Brown, and then and, and now they're at Duke. So there you are. It's a, a ferment, a time of great ferment. And of course, Herb Schiller's here. Absolutely so, right. Uh, there's a strong history of Marxism within the communications field. Uh, was his hegemony of that department still in place then, or had it already been eroded? When I arrived, it was still in place, but it was slowly waning. Um, um, Herb was very much a presence still on campus, um, although the department had always been marginalized because of its politics, obviously, because, again, 
as we were talking about yesterday, UC San Diego is, is the epitome of a techno-science uh, institution. The original name proposed for it was the La Jolla Institute of Technology. <laughs> they very much wanted to be the MIT of the West. Um, so people like Herb didn't quite fit in, and of course Herb, you know, was part of that tradition of Herbert Marcuse, who was here as well. And so was Carlos, you know, Carlos and Herb and, and, and Herbert were the, the three amigos, as we say, <laughs> you know, on the left here at UCSD. Um, so yes, I got to know her, but then uh, of course I got to know his son and his daughter-in-law even better, Dan Schiller and Susan Davis. And in fact, Dan was in the pod about three or four weeks ago. Um, as you can imagine, he being a Schiller, it was 7.15 a.m. in a coffee shop in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so yes, I was colleagues with them for, for several years before they moved off to Illinois. And, um, you know, and I think UC San Diego has changed a lot since then. Uh, I think the, the comm department is not what it was then. It's, it's very different. And, and in fact, I think their identity is premised on a, on a kind of rejection of the Herb Schiller model of, of communications. And our department, which is literature, is also premised on almost on a kind of rejection of the founding fathers. I know there were all kinds of problems with the founding fathers because they were founding and they were fathers, right? <laughs> and they were very much fathers. And yet, um, part of me sometimes gets nostalgic for the kind of community they were able to create because now um, it's kind of every man for him and woman for him or herself. There's a kind of fragmentation in the system that I'm sure you feel at Riverside. One of the things about Herb, just to throw this in, and Angie Valdivia, I know, feels this too, mm. is that wherever you go in the world, if you say to any group of people mm. outside the United States, I knew Herb Schiller, he was a friend of mine, mm. you're adulated. I mean, you are given the most extraordinary reception. Right. People are profoundly impressed by this. Mm -hmm. But if you say it here, either they look appalled or they don't know who he is. Right. I mean, it's just incredible. Right, actually. right. That, that most most faculty look appalled and will distance themselves from you, um, and that's even in the comm department. The same is true of Carlos Blanco Aguinaga. If you go anywhere in the world, especially the Spanish-speaking world, whether it's Mexico or Spain or you know all the way down to Chile, they'll know who he is. Um, and here, most people don't know who he was. So um, it's it's a little bit sad. I mean, I I think. The, the neoliberal dispensation comes with a kind of rejection of history and a kind of presentism, you know, that allows it to reproduce itself. And, and unfortunately, I think, not to sound like the old man who trudged through the snow on his way <laughs> to school, but uh, too many of the younger faculty buy into that. I, I remember a young uh, assistant professor here years ago who's no longer here and who's now very, very famous uh, in queer studies, um, you know, who, who used to chuckle and laugh about um, Marxism and say, well, you know, you, you guys are proposing things that aren't going to happen, so you're wasting your time. Um, well, you know, um, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that the project isn't worthwhile. <laughs> no, and there are lots of analytic parts of it that aren't compromised by the futures that it holds dear and can't realize, and there are lots of futures that are not 
the totality of the Marxist project that do get realised, mm -hmm. taking things out of the market, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've got about five minutes left, Jorge, and I wondered if in that time we might reflect on another part of your activism, a very important part, uh, which is the issue of recruiting Latinos and Latinas to the US military. By way of background to people, across this country, the US military has for years been the largest employer of 17 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm because it was officially desegregated after the Second World War. It has been a kind of bastion of affirmative action uh, in certain ways, and speaks up in favor of affirmative action in legal forum, uh, and is presented as such to young minority folks and to women. That if there are a few institutions where you might have a chance of transcendence from your current circumstances, then this is one. And I know that at least at various times in your life, you've gone into schools with other uh, Chicano veterans. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about those issues, and especially the recruiting devices that are currently being mobilized to target these populations. Right. So um, for your listeners, if, if they want to Google projectyano.org, so that's Project Y-A-N-O, which stands for Youth and Non-Military Opportunities, they can see our organization here in San Diego. And we're one of the oldest uh, counter-recruitment organizations in the country. And we've actually trained people around the country to do this kind of work. Um, Toby is right to say that the, the U.S. military presents itself as this kind of um, equal opportunity affirmative action institution. Um, and yet we know from the Pentagon's own statistics that black and Latino soldiers are grouped in the lowest ranks of the military. So that means that they're also grouped in the most dangerous military occupations, whether it be um, infantry, uh, artillery, or even truck driver, right? Um, but they're not grouped in the high specialty technical professions in the military. Where you're back some distance from the action. Absolutely. And nowadays you might even not be in the same country. That's right, exactly. And so the other thing we know um, that belies the propaganda is that 85% of the officer corps in the U.S. military is white. So the occasional figure that rises to the top like a Colin Powell is absolutely the exception to the rule. Um, now, in the late 90s, and this was under Clinton, and I'll summarize this quickly, um, the Pentagon realized that the fastest growing military age population was going to be Latinos, just because of the birth rate. And they began this very robust campaign uh, in Spanish with multi-millions of dollars dedicated to it and in English, uh, targeting that population, men and women. They're very interested in Latinas, too. Again, one has to look at the, the data, uh, which show that um, there's not a lot of other opportunities for these young people. They're, they're probably not going to go to college. A lot of them wind up in the community college that we talked about, which is the lowest level, and linger there for five or six years and drop out, right? So the military is one of the few exits for them. And so that um, population being targeted heavily. Here in San Diego, we have recruiters roaming the halls in high schools um, every day. And these people get bounties, by the way, the recruiters, right. for the numbers that they bring in. Right. And they talk about, the recruiters call it bodies on the floor. That, you know, so each one they land is another $200 or so for them. Um, 
and um, San Diego, because it's a hyper-militarized space in the United States, also has things like shooting ranges on high school campuses for the junior ROTC, or Officer Training Corps, um, where they, the Pentagon says very explicitly, we need to get them early. So we also have something called the uh, young Marines, which are still over 200 programs of young Marines in the country, and those are targeting middle school children. So, by the way, for people who don't know yeah. this, the Marines are the people who were sent in, and basically the idea is they are totally expendable. Right. The Marine Corps is the most hardcore branch of the U.S. military. Their motto is, um, you know, we destroy and kill. <laughs> That's their motto. You know, they destroy things and kill things. So, um, you know, where we're sitting right now is 20 minutes uh, from the largest marine base in the country, Camp Pendleton, which is right up the road here. So, um, so yes, um, uh, military recruitment is a very intense reality for minority children in the United States, and their schools, their public schools, are targeted as a prime site for recruitment. And to finish off, tell us a little bit, because I'd love us to go over time just a wee bit to get this. In Project Yano, what are some of the things that you personally have done? Well, we go into high schools. We go to job fairs where there's usually a booth or two with military recruiters there. We don't tell young people what to do. We never say to them, don't enlist. Uh, because we understand the pressures on them, financial pressures and, you know, lack of opportunity. Uh, but we say, Here, here's what the recruiter told you, and here's the reality of it. There's almost a truth in advertising kind of uh, project, and it's also, uh, in more general terms, an anti-militarist project. So we have people um, doing research on uh, toys on video games and other kind of media where you know militarism has is infiltrated uh, the system to a high degree. So uh, if you all go to projectyano.org, you'll all see a link for something called draft notices, which is our newsletter, and it describes all of our activities. Thank you very much, Jorge Mariscal. It's been great seeing you. It's always great to see you. We don't meet up very often, but it's always memorable for me. And I hope that you'll come back into the pod, because one thing we didn't get on to talking about was your last book that I'm aware of, which is a history of the Chicano movement from, I guess, 75 to 85. So can we try to find another time soon to do that? I hope so. Thanks so much, Toby. Great.